so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Well, the funny thing is, four years of marriage, when we hugged this morning, our my armpit hit his arm and made it one of those armpit noises. <laughs> <laughs> so then we started doing it over and over again. I was like, four years of marriage for you. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's great. Wow. Oh, man. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me in the studio, as always, is Brent Leatherwood. That's Say it. hi, Brent. <laughs> oh, I, it sounded like there was more going. I don't know. I, so, I didn't come up with something. So, yeah, clever hey, y'all from uh, Autumnal Nashville. We have now had. Is that a character in the Chronicles of Narnia? <laughs> Autumnal that, Nashville? That, it sounds like Tumnus. No, 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 no. So fall is officially here, as I'm sure that our audience is well aware of, and it's hit Nashville. I'm wearing a uh, jacket. It's cold outside. A rather thick jacket, and it's 60, upper 60s right It's a North Face jacket, and it was in the 40s this morning. Listen, I just have to steal the spotlight away from you for a minute here and let you know that as we're recording, it is my fourth wedding anniversary today. Yes. Are you going to tell me happy anniversary? Oh, happy anniversary <laughs> to you and Justin. So the reason I'm pointing this out is because my husband said it's the equivalent of our college education and marriage. So we are <laughs> graduating. We are um, four years in. We're just about ready to write our marriage book. <laughs> We're two yeah. years into parenting. We're ready to write our parenting book too. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to that lucrative career. So what? Um, who who of the two of you would be the uh, the marriage uh, valedictorian. Uh, I guess. Or no, I, I guess if it's college, it'd be the what magna cum laude. I mean, what? I don't know what you are in college. I was not it. Yeah. Whatever it was, therefore <laughs> I do not know. <laughs> I don't. We'll we'll That's take an true. equal share there. But yeah. anyway, I just had to had to throw that in there on this beautiful fall September day. And an interesting note: four years ago on this day in September, it was in the nineties. Boy, am I glad that's not the case now. But so that we can get moving on and talking about what's happening this week, I want to start out with talking about what has been happening on ERLC.com. So with sexual abuse in our denominational news this week, we'll be talking about uh, shortly here in the culture section, it's important to highlight those who often get overlooked, and that is the survivors. And so we have an article by Brad Hambrick, a counselor out of the Summit Church in North Carolina, and it's titled, What Joseph's Story Teaches Us About Abuse, Forgiveness, Power Differentials, and Wisdom. And of course, this is the Joseph in the Old Testament who was sold by his brothers 
years into slavery in Egypt, and God used that to bring about the preservation of the Jewish people. But this article helps us think carefully about the unhelpful expectations that we often put on survivors, such as forgiveness, even when trying to be helpful and trying to use uh, biblical language. It's important to understand, though it's very nuanced and complex and hard for those of us who have not been there, that the road of of a survivor is difficult. And this article is an important one because it will help us understand that and walk with survivors in our lives along the way. Well, this was a big week in terms of news and developments on the abuse front, and, and we will get into that in the culture section. But, you know, I've had a couple of conversations over the last week or so with pastors uh, looking for resources related to how to either be prepared for ministry in this area or or how to deal with something that uh, has been uncovered. And I just want to use this as a moment to affirm Brad Hambrick, who has been essential in our work to equip the church, uh, our Caring Well Challenge, the resources that have come out of our our Caring Well initiative, which you can find that at caringwell.com. That's still very active. And we are still looking for churches to partner with, to help make churches uh, places that are safe for survivors and safe from abuse. And you're, you're right. We always want to, when survivors come forward with their story, we want to affirm that because it takes an immense amount of courage. And uh, pastors need to be ready for these moments, uh, because this is a particular part of the of the body that needs ministry, and um, it can be a a daunting task, but it is one that I believe our our pastors can do so and flourish in and, and help these people know the love of Christ, uh, and that God is grieved by their situations. And so, read this piece by Brad. And if you are a pastor or ministry leader out there, and your church is interested in getting equipped further on this, please visit our website caringwell.com so that you can do that. Which I would say your church should be interested. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we want to partner with all SBC churches and churches outside of the SBC. We want them to get equipped as well. I mean, because this is, this is a problem that uh, we need to confront as believers. And so we're, we're hopeful that this initiative will, will help churches do that. Right. And you don't know what you don't know. So this is this is designed to educate and equip as well, as it certainly has me, as I've seen what our colleagues and our friends have put together. Next up is a piece by Daniel Patterson, our former colleague, and it's titled, it's a book review, it's titled, How to Approach Parenting with Wisdom, Grit, and Gospel Focus, Four Helpful Features of Full Circle Parenting. And Full Circle Parenting is the title of a book, a recent book put out by Jimmy and Kristen Scroggins. Jimmy is a pastor at a family church in Florida. He and his wife have eight children. They have uh, walked the gamut as far as ages and stages. Uh, Their oldest is married now. They have grandchildren. And so they have walked through parenting. They're not just uh, two years in like me and my husband, um, but they have lived it. And 
any book that starts with parenting isn't for wimps, as Daniel has pointed out, is on the right track because parenting is definitely not for wimps. And amid the plethora of parenting resources, this is one that stands out. And as Daniel says, is one that you will want to read, that pastors will want to have on their shelves, and that churches will want to give away freely. And finally, in an increasingly digital age, there are naturally more discussions and debates about privacy, moderating content, and the best way to do this and the legality of this and and legislation surrounding this. So Jason Thacker on staff with us and our uh, technology expert has an article titled, What Online Pornography Debates Teach Us About Morality and Governance? So many of these discussions and these brouhaha's are about online pornography and what kind of restrictions there should be, how we should be legislating it, even while people will profess to support pornography's distribution, you still see that there is a, um, it is taboo because businesses see how supporting pornography online affects their businesses. And so they'll choose not to, like we've heard in news about credit card companies that don't want to support online pornography, et cetera. So this raises all kinds of debates. And while those for the free distribution of online pornography um, say we can't legislate morality like this, Jason points out an important point of his article is that these proponents, they fail to realize that all legislation involves making moral statements and that these proponents are involved in other legislative discussions that involves making moral statements about other things. It's just those things that they deem to be good or those things that they deem to be bad. So these are important though oftentimes confusing discussions for us to be involved in as Christians. And that's why I wanted to point it out because Jason, as always, helps us to take these things that we might not be naturally inclined to think about, and he shows us the importance of them and the importance of being uh, educated ourselves as believers. Both of these pieces that you just mentioned are really good. Uh, I love this piece by our former colleague, Daniel Patterson, talking about Parents and parenting and, you know, any book by Jimmy Scroggins is one that is worth your time, but one especially so that is about parenting. And um, parenting is a daunting task, to say the least. And uh, apparently, I'm, I'm in the mood to use the word daunting today because I think that's either the second or third time I've said it. So, uh, And then this piece by Jason, you know, he rightly is pointing out that, listen, everyone's got a moral agenda to push. Even if someone comes to you, oh no, I'm I'm, you know, I'm completely free of, you know, I'm not going to be legislating my morality. They are in fact legislating their their particular perspective. And and so that's, you know, that's why I think it's important for Christians to to speak to the culture whether they're in public service or not to help the culture understand what our framework is, why it is a part of God's good design for all humans to to flourish, and particularly as it relates to these new and emerging technologies where really legislation is only just now catching up uh, with so much of, of this technology. And, uh, and so this piece by Jason is, uh, once again, very thoughtful and very helpful uh, as we think through those, those issues. Well, and more and more, our lives are going to play out online, and technology is only going to advance. I 
I can't even begin to think of what it's going to look like 20 years down the road when our children are grown or whatnot. So these discussions are imperative. And, uh, you know, as I always point out, we have lots of other resources on our site. I did want to point out that we have another article by Brad Hambrick that ran this week dealing with what illustrations pastors use in their preaching, and it's geared towards survivors and how to have survivors in mind. It's actually an excerpt from a book that he just released. So I thought that was important, especially as we're about to go into our culture section and discuss how um, sexual abuse was in the SBC news this week. But for now, that's your look at what's happening at ERLC.com. So moving into our culture section, Brent, tell us what's happening this week. Yeah, so as we mentioned earlier, this was a big week in the SBC as it relates particularly to the issue of abuse. And that is because the members of the trustee board of the Southern Baptist Executive Committee, uh, they met this week in Nashville. And so um, to give us a quick rundown, uh, this first story comes from Baptist Press. In its first meeting since messengers to the June 2021 Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting called for an independent third-party review of the SBC Executive Committee, the EC responded to several routine motions and moved to fund the independent review, but declined to waive attorney-client privilege for the time being. After a three-hour extra session Tuesday afternoon, the executive committee ultimately rejected a proposal from its officers and instead adopted a temporary measure to move the sexual abuse review forward, leaving the detail to be hashed out between the officers and the sex abuse task force within seven days. One of the most significant undecided details was whether or not the EC will agree to waive attorney-client privilege as guidepost solutions. The independent firm chosen by the task force to conduct the review has requested in the motion passed by SBC messengers in June, the EC was instructed to abide by the recommendations of the third-party firm up to and including the waiver of attorney-client privilege. So just as a reminder for our audience, SBC meeting happens in June. Uh, the messengers to the annual meeting passed a motion uh, that called for an independent advisory group to be appointed by new SBC president Ed Litton. And for that advisory group to select an outside firm to conduct an investigation of the executive committee. And should that investigatory body uh, request that attorney-client privilege be waived, that the EC should do so. And where we are left here is that the EC has deferred a decision on waiving attorney-client privilege, but they did move forward uh, with funding uh, the investigation to the tune of $1.6 million. So that is an important step. It is not uh, fully complying with what messengers uh, have requested, but that is yet to be determined. Can I ask a couple clarifying yeah. questions really quick? So what authority does the sexual abuse task force, the advisory group, have in this? They cannot, just to help us understand, they can't make the executive committee waive attorney-client privilege, correct? No. Uh -uh. So SBC President Ed Litton made it clear that uh, he gave uh, the direction to the task force, you are appointed to determine which outside firm would be best uh, equipped to handle this, make that recommendation, and then that is the end of your duties. At that point, you are just to receive uh, the information that comes from the task force, or excuse me, from the outside investigation. 
Are they disbanded after that? They're not disbanded, but that's the end of their role for now. Gotcha. Uh, They're to receive the report. As far as, you know, uh, requesting that the EC uh, waive attorney-client privilege, the outside investigation has requested that, and thus far the the executive committee has has not complied. Now, they may still, at the end of, they have a seven-day period, uh, and, and they may yet do so, uh, but should they not, my expectation would be that that will be noted in the final report uh, that is generated and given to the task force. So related to this and also from Baptist Press is this story. A collective of SBC executive committee members have released a statement in response to Tuesday's approval of a motion that while funding a task force approved investigation into allegations of the mishandling of sexual abuse claims stopped short of waiving attorney-client privilege. SBC EC member Jared Wellman, who helped draft the statement, presented his own motion Tuesday that called for fully waiving privilege, but his motion was defeated 55 to 20. From the statement, it says, We grieve yesterday's vote by the executive committee, who, in unprecedented fashion, prohibited the will of the messengers for an open and transparent investigation into the executive committee. It is our opinion that the failed vote only justifies the need for an open investigation. We join with the messengers who desire justice for survivors of sexual abuse, and we feel that this cannot happen so long as the executive committee forbids an open and transparent investigation, which must include the waiving of privilege. Now, the executive committee, for its part, also released a statement and said the executive committee fully funded the review, which they did. I mean, that's the $1.6 million, in effect, beginning the formal review process and move the critical discussions further in a spirit of unity and cooperation, even if some substantive issues remain unresolved. We ask Southern Baptists to pray, especially over the next seven days, that the ultimate outcome of this process strengthens and unifies our convention as it relates to this independent review, but especially as it relates to our collective concern for survivors of sexual abuse. Uh, To that end, um, one of the sponsors of the motion uh, from the annual meeting, uh, Pastor Ronnie Parrott from North Carolina, as well as his colleague, Pastor Grant Gaines from from here in Tennessee, uh, they have called for over the next seven days uh, to be a time of prayer and fasting that Southern Baptists can in spirit uh, join with these uh, these very important uh, deliberations uh, that, that are going on uh, in the hopes that a solution can be found that adheres to the, the will of the annual meeting. You know, watching some of this play out over Twitter and social media the last couple of days has been really sad because instead of there being a collective voice for survivors and for the well-being of survivors and for bringing any kind of sexual abuse or wrongdoing as far as any kind of cover-up or anything like that goes into the light, there's not been a collective voice for that. And that's tragic because as believers, regardless of where we are or what it might cost us, we should be for the truth and we should be for any wrongdoing being brought out into the light and we should be for um, the health and the well-being of survivors and making our churches safe from abuse. And I realize that this is, this whole process is confusing. And so 
I am looking forward to what comes out of these seven days of deliberation and to more articles and more more podcast episodes by us, truthfully, with you uh, explaining this, Brent, so that I can understand it more and so we can help others understand it more. And of course, we do need to be praying, as you pointed out, that we would do the right thing, regardless of the cost, that we would count the cost and do the right thing and glorify Christ in the midst of it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's there's going to be a lot more developments in the coming days. We'll certainly cover those. And you're right. Uh, the process can be very confusing, and and that's just the reality of you know Baptist polity and uh, the the autonomy uh, that we certainly all uh, believe in. And um, so that that does make the process a bit of a winding one for sure. All right, moving to other developments. There's big news on the COVID front. NBC News has this. The Food and Drug Administration authorized a third dose of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine Wednesday for emergency use in people ages 65 and up, as well as those 18 and older at high risk of exposure to the coronavirus or severe illness. Boosters are to be given at least six months after people get their second doses of the Pfizer vaccine. An advisory group to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention opened a two-day meeting on safety and effectiveness of Pfizer's booster shot. Those advisors will vote later this week. So remember to get the, to get the full approval, the FDA and the CDC both have to uh, to concur for, for it to move forward. So everyone expects that the CDC will give uh, that that approval. But uh, needless to say, this is uh, this is this is an important development, uh, uh, particularly for those who are vulnerable in our midst. And um, I mean, look if if they come and they say you know people our age need to get it, like sign me up. If it helps to thwart this this virus and uh, keep it from developing new variants, like, man, give me my time slot and give me the jab. Give you your third jab. I know my mom is excited because she is over 65. She wouldn't mind me telling you. And uh, so she is eager to get that. My uncle has already gotten it. Uh, again, as we have said, we're just thankful for this technology and for the proven safety of the vaccines. I do know that people have hesitancy. There have been some side effects. Other good news I think I've seen... Uh, around on the interwebs is that they're getting close to the vaccine being approved for ages 5 to 11. Of course, I don't know when, but there's been some good news on that front. The trials have gone well, which is great. I know it's scary, scarier when you're thinking of your little kids, um, but it's also scary thinking of a pandemic continuing on and on and on and going through the English alphabet, the Greek alphabet, the Spanish alphabet, all the different alphabets. <laughs> all the variants, <laughs> yeah, right? All the variants. Yeah. So, yeah. good news. Well, sticking with that theme, uh, Mormons will now be masked. Uh, ABC News reports this. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints announced Wednesday that masks will be required inside temples to limit the spread of COVID-19. Church leaders said in a statement that masks will be required temporarily in an effort to keep temples open. The message was the latest in a series of statements from church leaders encouraging masking and vaccination efforts against COVID-19. In Utah, where the church is based, a summer surge of the virus among unvaccinated residents has continued to grow while vaccination rates have slightly increased. Just pointing this out there, it's it's interesting. Uh, Obviously, they have a hierarchy within uh, the the Mormon church that allows them to uh, give these sorts of requirements that will be followed at, at temples uh, across the country. But it's I think it's interesting, the timing of this. I'm, I'm surprised it, it hadn't come sooner. 
because there are some indications that we are on the backside of this latest outbreak due to the Delta variant. And so just the timing to me is very interesting. Well, uh, I'm interested to see if there's any kind of backlash among the Mormons uh, as far as this this mandate goes for them wearing masks, because I certainly know there would be backlash within the Christian community and churches if that right. was the case. That's so right. yeah. Mormons are, are doing a little little better here as far as my hot take goes than, <laughs> than uh, many of us in our churches during high, severe times of the spread of COVID. Right. I mean, well, that's been, that's been the counsel that we've tried to provide for pastors who ask, you know, well, what should we do in my church? Well, work with your local officials, your local public health experts. Don't pay attention to what, what's going on nationally. You, what's happening in New York and San Francisco it is not the same thing that's, you know, going on in Rossville, Georgia. And so just work with local officials and, and you know, talk with them set up a pathway of dialogue uh, so that you can get the latest information and and then lead your lead your congregation uh, accordingly and so that's that's what we have felt has always been uh, the best approach and um, if there's a local outbreak hey that's probably the 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 wise time to do something like that and if you're in a if you're in an area with high vaccination rates you're, you're probably safe so I mean just localism that's the key mm-hmm. well and candidly just because I want to get on a soapbox for a second I just I don't get the mask hesitancy. I mean, maybe for some people, it is not safe for them to wear. I just don't get it. And on a lighter note, listen, as women or men too, but you don't have to worry about if there's anything in your nose that you're not catching when you're going out in public. You don't have to worry about as a woman, if you've got on lipstick or if your makeup looks okay around like a half of your face. There's just so many conveniences involved. (laughs) If anything's in your teeth, if if the friend didn't tell you if you got the lettuce from your lunch out of your teeth, just put on the mask. Wow. (laughs) That's a practical tip from Lindsay Nicolay. Practical tips. Let's look on the bright side, people. (laughs) (laughs) Just just direct all your phone calls to Lindsay Nicolay. Hey, I don't want, I'll give you Brent's email. (laughs) You can email him. I don't want your hate mail. Uh, All right. Many people uh, in our audience have probably seen the scenes at the border in Texas, which are just alarming. The number of refugees, uh, particularly as they're coming from Haiti, uh, who are uh, trying to come through the the southern border at Texas. And uh, this week, actually, just as before we went on the air, the special envoy from President Biden's administration to Haiti has resigned. Fox News has this. President Biden's special envoy for Haiti, Ambassador Daniel Foote, resigned Thursday, saying he will not take part in the United States, quote, inhumane, counterproductive decision to deport thousands of Haitian refugees amid a surge in migrants from Haiti across the southern border. In his resignation letter to Secretary of State Antony Blinken, first reported by PBS News on Thursday, Foote said the Biden administration's approach to Haiti, quote, remains deeply flawed and his recommendations have been, quote, ignored and dismissed. He went on to say, I will not be associated with the United States' inhumane, counterproductive decision to deport thousands of Haitian refugees and illegal immigrants to Haiti, a country where American officials are confined to secure compounds because of the danger posed by armed gangs and control of daily life. 
Our policy approach to Haiti remains deeply flawed, and my recommendations have been ignored and dismissed when not edited to project a narrative different than my own, he added. Foote was appointed to this post in July following the assassination of Haiti's president. So, look, what has transpired in Haiti over the last few months and really over the last several decades has just been a human rights tragedy. Everything from just basic functions that we're very accustomed to of America have failed. There have been major uh, natural disasters from earthquakes and and hurricanes hitting uh, that nation to, well, as it was put in in this uh, letter, the civil society uh, is is being marred by all sorts of gangs there. It's it is a very tragic situation, and the the U.S. response to it has often varied. And um, just the the latest uh, environment in Haiti has now caused this surge of refugees that are seeking seeking refuge here in the United States. And the Biden administration's approach to this point has been just to basically send them right back to Haiti. And that has alarmed a a number of immigration uh, leaders who are asking for uh, some sort of accommodation to be made uh, for these people who are fleeing just a terrible situation. And is this related to the story that we have seen in the news about uh, agents, border agents on horseback, purportedly using whips? Yeah, so uh, we have Customs and Border Patrol agents at the southern, you know, the the U.S. border with Mexico, it varies uh, in its topography, right? I mean, some of it's just rolling right along the Rio Grande and uh, it's very flat. Others is, gosh, almost like canyons. And so the typical person probably thinks, oh, you just drive along the border to patrol it in a truck. Well, no, some of that is just not feasible. And the area where these folks are amassing is an area where uh, they patrol uh, by vehicle, but also on horseback. And there were some video and photographs that emerged this week of certain Customs and Border Patrol agents basically running up on horseback to these refugees and trying to scare them back across the border, intimidate them. And it was... uh, it was a honestly, it was hard to watch uh, those videos and, and these pictures. And look, I understand we, we want to, we certainly want to control this. That is w- well within uh, the authority of the state to to control the flow of people and, and do so in an orderly fashion. But my goodness, let's let, let's let's not whip people and intimidate them and scare them because they are fleeing a very scary situation. And um, you know, this for us as Christians just comes back to, hey, we are all made in the image of God. And let's let's treat everyone, even if we disagree with the reasons they, they might be fleeing, let's treat them as fellow image bearers and respect their inherent dignity that God has bestowed upon them uh, as we seek to sort out the situation and and put them through the immigration channels that that our, our government has created. Right. And let's put ourselves in their shoes, try to imagine ourselves in their shoes. Yes, we have to have a a responsible immigration policy. We have to have uh, controlled measures at our border. But like you said, we need to treat 
the ways in which we do that, we need to treat people with dignity and respect. And in a fallen world, the outcomes are not going to be what we would have wanted. Many of them are going to be heartbreaking um, as far as um, not being able to let everyone into this country. But the circumstances in which someone would be compelled to flee and put themselves and their families in danger and in harm's way, it's just... It would break our hearts if we were being treated in the same way, if that was us or our children or our family members. And so just trying to put ourselves in their shoes, I think might help us have more compassion on these people who are fleeing for their lives and for their livelihoods. And look, Southern Baptists have been unequivocal in saying that our immigration system has got to be fixed because when you have situations like this and you're dealing with a system that is is very broken, is very inefficient, and in many ways is very under underfunded, adding this kind of stress onto it is – it creates an untenable situation. And so uh, the Southern Baptist Convention through our annual meeting has over the years on multiple occasions asked that our nation's leaders put their attention and focus on solving this situation – Because you can have a secure border, uh, whether it's Texas, Canada, uh, our our maritime uh, areas, you can have a secure border and you can also have an effective immigration system. And right now it just, man, it's, it's just a mess down there. So we need to be praying for those people who are fleeing uh, a terrible situation and, and for the, the leaders of our nation to try and address uh, this, this broken system. All right, moving overseas, there is, I I put it this way in our our notes, just an infuriating uh, development over in the UK on the issue of abortion. So this story comes to us from the Associated Press. A woman with Down syndrome lost a court challenge against the British government Thursday over a law allowing abortion up until birth of a fetus with the condition. Heidi Crowder, 26, and two others took the Department of Health and Social Care to court arguing that part of the Abortion Act is discriminatory and violates the European Convention on Human Rights. Abortions in England, Wales, and Scotland are allowed up till 24 weeks of pregnancy, but the law states that terminations can be allowed up until birth if there's, quote, a substantial risk that if the child were born, it would suffer from such physical or mental abnormalities as to be seriously handicapped. Crowder, who lives independently and recently got married, has said that she found the legislation offensive and disrespectful. She said she wanted to change the law to challenge people's perception of Down syndrome. This is, gosh, this is so infuriating. Mm-hmm. It, it seems like horrible. We are we. Are, it seems like we are we are making some progress here in the states as it relates to abortion, and, and potentially have a huge opportunity this coming fall with the Supreme Court to, to possibly overrule uh, Roe versus Wade. And yet, to see something like this, it is, I mean, how many of us know uh, folks with Down syndrome who are living full, God-honoring, kingdom-building lives? And and even if they weren't doing that, they're still worthy of being allowed the basic right to take a breath and come into this world. And this is just... Gosh, this is so sad. This is just, and it's discouraging, and it just shows, my gosh, we have so much more to do as it relates to helping people understand the basic dignity that is due to preborn lives. 
Well, and what's disgusting too is how it's couched in the language of the termination can be allowed if there's a quote, a substantial risk that if the child were born, it would suffer from such physical or mental abnormalities as to be seriously handicapped. And let's be honest, the concern isn't for the child here being handicapped. The concern is for the burden that it would put on society or on the parents, the individuals who might raise these children. And that is just the truth, uh, as we can see in our across our world, where um, the usefulness of people is to ourselves is ultimately uh, what we are bowing down to, and it's just sad. And I know it especially hits home for you and your wife Meredith, as Meredith had a sister, a wonderful sister with Down syndrome, who was just a joy in their lives. Mm. Mm, absolutely, and Amy. Uh, you know, she, she's passed on, and I can't wait to see her again in heaven because she always had such a joyful spirit. And she added so much to not only my my wife's life, but her parents. My in-laws cherished each of the, the 40-something uh, years that they had with Amy. And to see that the government over in the U.K., is allowing people up until the very last moment before they're born to be able to have this kind of ability is, as you said, it's disgusting. And just once again, it's just another instant. There are thousands in our culture where people are putting themselves in the judgment seat and thinking they can be the arbiters of life. And that that is not for them. That is a role for God, and he occupies that seat with soul and sovereign authority. And it's just, gosh, this this, this really just burns my biscuits. <laughs> well, and I want to take a minute, too, to celebrate the parents who choose life. Yes, and absolutely. They, They're champions. Yes. yes, and they would not view themselves as heroes. They would view themselves as, uh, in the Gospels, the disciples said, uh, we're doing only what what it was our our job to do, basically, that they were doing what is just the most natural thing, and that is to allow a little boy, a little girl, the right to life, and then lovingly care for these these little ones for as long as they have the privilege of being able to be their parents. And we have a couple in our church that just recently gave birth to a son uh, with Down syndrome. And from the beginning, when they found out the diagnosis, their message was, we're not sorry because we know that God ordained this little one's life and that he is the perfect addition to our family and we are going to love him well and we just count it a privilege to be his parents. And not once have they complained at all because they realize the value of his life. Yeah. I mean, thank you to all parents who choose life and especially because we we live in such a fallen culture that it just constantly preaches at us that life is disposable, that unplanned pregnancy is a hurdle towards living a full life, uh, that it is a detriment on you, that there will be a drain on you. And thank you for seeing through that and choosing life, you know, regardless of the, the circumstance, but especially if, if it is one where the child might have Down syndrome. So all right, so lastly, uh, Dateline, uh, Kansas City, uh, going to the the world's worst airport. This story, and uh, you know, I say that with all due respect to our friends at our Shade sister drone, entity, yes. uh, Midwestern 
uh, Seminary, as well as our colleague Julie Masson, who operates out of Kansas City. But Kansas City's Fox 4 News says this, the, the company that will likely be chosen to manage food and concessions at Kansas City International Airport's new terminal said its plans will no longer include Chick-fil-A. Come on, y'all. What, what are you doing? The city's LGBTQ commission spearheaded the effort. Members of that commission sending a letter to city officials and city council members asking the city to remove a Chick-fil-A location from the new KCI terminal plans. Uh, Horn, uh, who is the, the chairman of the commission, said that there are two main concerns. The first is Chick-fil-A's history of donating to organizations that do not support LGBTQ efforts. And the commission also said that if Chick-fil-A is at the airport, it takes away the opportunity for a locally owned business to be in that space. That second one, that may be legitimate, uh, you know, whatever. Let's, the the real story here is Chick-fil-A supports organizations like, like the URLC that take a view, a traditional biblical scriptural view of marriage saying that it should be between one man and one woman for life. And they, they give to organizations like us who, who believe in that. And these folks are saying, ah, that's, that's anti-LGBT. No, what that is, is it's pro this view of marriage, you know, and it just, y'all, if we keep doing this to ourselves, if our culture keeps doing this to ourselves, we're, we're just we're just not going to be able to live in harmony anymore. This is just ridiculous. Right. It's and it's so petty. It's a little stand-up shop at the airport. I mean, come on. Well, and it's a privately owned business that has the right to give to organizations that they want to give to. And the thing is, it's not consistently applied across the board because, okay, so have they talked about what restaurants that they're putting into this airport that say, don't support the causes and the issues that I believe in. So what if an organization gives to pro-choice organizations? Well, I don't support that. And that deeply grieves me and it goes against my conscience. But that's it's not applied across the board because that's not where the money is and that's not where the cultural capital is, should we say. So, yeah, I just, and look, this is a, this is a private, organization, I guess, that's hosting these restaurants. So, you know, it, it it's f- fully within their rights to choose who comes in and who doesn't. So this is just more of a cultural commentary. And it's just, y'all, our culture is just constantly looking for adversaries right now to war against. And we need to pull back from this brink because it's unsustainable. Well, and it just goes to show that there is going to be a price to pay for upholding God's word and what God declares to be true. And we can uphold it in truth and in grace, just like our Savior, and in kindness and with the gentleness and respect we can give the reason for the hope that we have, as Paul says. But that still is going to mean that people are not for us and that people are against us because they're against the savior whom we represent and so they do their eyes are not open to see that that God's ways are best and they're good and they're for flourishing so as as a believer when it comes to matters of, that especially deal with the sexual revolution taking a stand for what God's word teaches it's going to come with a cost and so we need we need God's grace to be able to uh, count that cost and say okay lord you and your glory and the good of our our neighbors is worth it. Amen. You're right. All right. 
Well, so Lindsay, that's your look at This Week in Culture. Thanks, Brent. And now it's time for the lunchroom, where we'll tell you what we're talking about with each other. Brent, what you have for us this week? Okay, so the thing I saw came from CNN, and there's a TikTok video that has like 4 million views, and it was taken by a woman who was trapped in a car that was caught in the midst of a flash flood. And these Marines uh, were coming by vehicles that were trapped in this flash flood. They are in full dress uniform, you know, looking sharp like, like our U.S. Marines often do. And they just, they offered to help this woman who was trapped. And I just, I love it. I want to affirm it. Uh, so thankful for our men and women who serve our, our nation in uniform, uh, but especially uh, when they they sacrifice like this. I mean, they are wading through, you know, water that comes up above their knees. And gosh, it just, just you love seeing that because those are the things that our culture should affirm, uh, not, not, you know, canceling fast food restaurants. So. That's right. <laughs> that is right, Brent. <laughs> Although I will say, you remember last year when they had, we, we had that like chicken shortage? Well, you mm-hmm. know what? If the folks that, that fly out of uh, Kansas City don't, don't want, you know, Chick-fil-A, that means more chicken for folks like you and me who eat it probably way too often. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> and you're missing out if you're not eating Chick-fil-A, I will have to say. Uh, yes, Brent, I hope you would wade into the water to rescue me from my car if I was trapped in a flood, but— I wouldn't do it in, in my Marine dress uniforms because I'm not a Marine, but— Would you soil your orange Tennessee gear? Because <laughs> I'm— That would—yes, because sure. I feel like I would have that as leverage over you for future. You would, you'd have yeah. to somehow root for Tennessee. I hope you would, yeah. but, but uh, if— I wear my Peyton Manning jersey to come rescue you. Yeah, but you could wear your high waters like me, and then you would spare yourself. Uh, you'd be That's able to wade right. into the water. That's anyway. right, yeah. So our audience needs to know. You're, you're wearing—what did you call it? I'm wearing well, trendy jeans. I'm trying but they to be look a little like, fashionable. Right, fashionable for your anniversary. So we get it. Uh, we're, we're thankful for your four years of marriage. But just to describe for our audience, they're basically bell bottoms that but trousers not, that have been cut off. Who says trousers? But they're not bell bell bottoms. Like they're not like a huge independence. Right. But they've been bell. cut off. And and so it would be appropriate for you to wear them when there is a flash flood occurring. Right. Uh, yes. Anyway, we digress. So on my. Uh, For my lunchroom, I am behind the times, but I recently just saw the movie Cruella on Disney+. And it was really interesting. It wasn't exactly what I thought. I don't necessarily recommend it. It's PG-13. I don't necessarily recommend it for kids. It seems more like an adult movie to me. Uh, It is, yeah, it's just really interesting. And you have to wrestle with different concepts as far as nature versus nurture and all of that kind of stuff. It's got some really cool outfits. It's set back in the 70s, but it actually looks like people are dressed for today. So there's nothing new under the sun there. Things just cycle well, yeah, right around. wearing bell bottoms. I know. It cut off bell bottoms. It doesn't matter how long or your pants are or how short they are. It's just you do you, Brent. You do you. Now, as always, there's a disclaimer. I don't endorse Everything in the movie, there are things that you would not necessarily agree with, uh, but it is a, just a fascinating look at a recreation of Cruella and how she turned into the the villain that she did while also being entertained by this movie. Did you, Meredith, watch it? Uh, no, no, but I don't like Cruella de Vil. She doesn't like puppies, and I can't get well, behind Well, she that. actually does like puppies in this movie. 
Spoiler alert. Doesn't she want to turn them into jackets? Well, she doesn't really. She, she, uh, I don't really want to tell you. She just is against this one lady who likes Dalmatians, but she's not against the Dalmatians. That's why you'll discover this as you watch the movie. And this is like the origin story of Grown? Yeah, this is like an X-Men origin story. Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. Well, the reason why my friend and I watched it is because my doppelganger apparently is Emma Stone. I don't see it, but I have strangers tell me frequently that you look like that Emma I look Stone. like Emma Stone. Yeah, you do. And no, I don't. I really don't. Yeah, you favor her. No. Well, who's older because she might favor me. But oh my god. Anyway, so that's why we had to watch it too. Anyway, uh, we digress again. But if you haven't seen Cruella. Don't watch it with your young kids, <laughs> but maybe watch it with your friends. <laughs> Can I even recommend that? Again, send your hate mail to Brent. I just, I, just at, I hope people are still listening by now because they are. Wow. They are. That's right. This okay. is a great place to end. Isn't yeah, this it? is. This is let's end oh, it now. Oh, man. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, which we sure hope you do, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating, five stars only, please, and review. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast each week, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology. If you like staying informed about important policy issues that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening. And as always, we'll be back next week with more content.